The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Happy Father's Day to all your fathers and mothers. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, You've heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You should love the person who's like you and hate the person who's not like you is the idea of that. But I say to you, this is Jesus who says this to us, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father. That means you might be like your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sins reign on righteous and unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now you have to understand the tax collectors in the first century were really hated, not like today where we love them and appreciate them. <laughs> if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I miss Chris Anderson, who used to go to church here, because he, he really liked uh, Rich Mullins, and I do too, so if I would ever uh, quote him, it, it always brought a smile to his face. This is a song by Rich Mullins. Listen to these words. Mullins wrote this. If I could sing it, I'd sing it to you, but I can't carry the tune. We, we didn't know what love was till he came, that is, till Christ came, and he gave, gave love a face, and he gave love a name. I would, I would counsel you to, whenever you're wondering about something like this, just go read the Gospels and see how Jesus treated people. See how he treated his enemies. See how he treated people who were condemned uh, in that community and how he responded to them. He goes on in this song, he gave love away like the sky gives the rain and sun. That's just what Jesus is saying. We were looking for heroes. He came looking for the lost. It's amazing to me that uh, you could ever talk about those who have not come to faith in Christ as though they are your enemies. No, they're not your enemies. They're the people to whom Christ has sent you to uh, preach the gospel. I I spoke at a retreat last week, and one of the things I did, I I might even do it today later, uh, right in the middle, middle of a sermon, I stopped and I said, you know, I want you to take just a few minutes and preach the gospel to the person sitting next to you. And they looked exactly like you look right now, like, what are you talking about? But I said, I'm serious, please do that. And so they did. They actually did. They, we took about five minutes or so, and I could see them talking to one another, preaching the gospel to each other. Preaching doesn't mean yell and scream. It just means communicate something with authority. This is an authoritative message. And uh, Christ has sent us into the world. And basically what he told his disciples, if you encounter a person who is willing to listen to you, who wants to know more about this gospel message, then continue to speak to them. Remain there. Now, if they don't want to hear, then move on. Uh, I was in a DMV office one day, uh, you know, taking care of some business. You know how frustrating that is. And so the line's real long, and I'm about four people back from this guy who walks up to the counter to talk to the lady behind the counter. And he began to try to share the gospel with her. He was very loud, and it was very mechanical. 
And uh, everybody in the line was just as irritated as could be. And she kept telling him, sir, this isn't the place or the time for this. We, you have a long line here. And he, didn't, he wouldn't listen to that. He was going to share the gospel with her. Well, it didn't really sound very much like the gospel, but he was really trying. He goes on, this, and this is a chorus. He says, we were searching for glory, and he showed us the cross. Now we know what love is because he loved us all the way to kingdom come. That's the name of the song, all the way to kingdom come. I want to pray. Um, my grandson, Austin, had a seizure last night and was in the hospital. I'm not even sure what's going on right now because I haven't been able to talk to anybody, but I want to pray for him. But I also want to pray for uh, uh, Chip G's family. His, uh, he passed away on Friday. We had prayed for him, and uh, he went to be with the Lord. And um, I th- I'm like 90% sure his wife's name is Laura, but I'm only 90% sure. <laughs> So I'm going to pray for him and for her. If that's not her name, you forgive me if you find out I've used the wrong name. But let's, let's just pause for a moment. Our Father, we are the people of God, and the Bible makes it clear that the people of God are those who pray together. And so we've come together, and we want to pray, and we want to ask you, Father, that you would manifest your presence and your power in the lives of these two families I pray for the G's. I pray, Father, for James, uh, Chip's father, who's now bearing his second son. And uh, I pray for him. I pray that you would just comfort his heart. I pray for Laura and the family. Lord, we don't pray for, for Chip anymore because he's so much better off than we are. He's in the presence of Jesus at this moment. And uh, we thank you for his life and for his commitment to follow Christ and to preach the gospel to whoever would listen. And so we ask that you would uh, touch that church, touch that family. I pray for my daughter, Shauna, and son-in-law, Randy, and for Austin. Father, keep your hand upon him. Thank you for him. He's a gift to his family, and it's been so wonderful to watch them love him and care for him over these years. And I pray that you would keep your hand upon him, Father. Manifest your mighty presence in their lives today. And I ask you for us, as we listen to the word today, may it penetrate our hearts. May we hear the voice of God. I pray that it would be that kind of experience that we know is God speaking to us through your word. And we need you. We are desperate for you, and we are hopeless without you. And so we ask that you would attend this meeting in a very special way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what we've been preaching through, but today I, I, I want to take, kind of actually back up a couple verses and go look at verses 14 through 16. And I want to convince you, and especially you fathers, but all of you really, uh, of the distinguishing mark of a Christian father. Um, I learned this in 1996. Uh, this passage came home to bear upon my heart about this one thing that is absolute necessity for us as fathers who are Christians to be a Christian father. Let me first of all read uh, the passage. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, 
so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. For the love of Christ controls us. This is, to get right to the point, this is the distinguishing characteristic of a Christian father. And it spills over into everything he does in his family. And that is the love of Christ controls us. I just want to make it clear in the very beginning, the love of Christ in this passage is not talking about your love for Christ. It's talking about Christ's love for you. This is what Paul was speaking about. Christ's love for me absolutely controls me. I cannot think of a more blessed state than the one that Paul is describing here, uh, being continually and uh, pervasively influenced by the love of Christ. The word control is really a strong word, and it has the idea of surrounding, hemming in, controlling, guiding, guarding. It's that kind of a word, very strong. And he says it's the love of Christ and that controls me. In other words, the love of Christ has seized the heart of Paul. It's taken him captive. And now he lives under this powerful influence. And everything that he does, this, this condition of being controlled by the love of Christ is seen in everything that Paul does. Every decision he makes, every place he goes, everything he says, everything that he does is a manifestation of the fact that his heart has been taken captive by Christ's love for him. Something's controlling your heart today and my heart. Something is controlling our heart. And uh, Paul says that the thing that has come to control my heart is the love of Christ. And I believe this is the most important characteristic of a man in order to be a Christian father. To be a Christ follower who leads a family. Um, This is so much different than religious living Religious life, religious living is, is uh, motivated by the possibility of gaining some acceptance with God through your efforts. But being controlled by the love of Christ is having your heart so controlled by the gospel, by the truth of the gospel, what, by what God has done in Christ Jesus, that it leads you, it bears you along, it determines your, your direction and your pace and everything that you do. And this is what Paul is talking about. Um, later on, it's kind of a, the fruit of this life is described for us in 2 Timothy. This is Paul's final book, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul's final words, the final letter that he wrote. And of course, he was in prison facing death. He was going to be decapitated uh, under the rule of Nero because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. And this is what he wrote. This is very touching to me because my, uh, my grandfather, uh, who was a preacher, um, his, my grandmother, whose name was Katie, I named my youngest after her. I was going to name, if it was a boy, I was going to name him after my grandfather. His name was Wiley Ellsworth. And, uh, but instead I named her after my grandmother. Her name was Katie. Actually, it was Katie Lamb. That was her maiden name. But I didn't get the lamb in. Um, But this is what he kept quoting as he entered into eternity. 
he had gone up to, he, pre, he pastored in Norman, Oklahoma, and uh, he had some people want him to come up to Kansas to preach the gospel in some meetings up there, and so he did. And these were, when I say meetings, I'm not talking about big auditoriums, I'm talking about what's called brush arbors, if you know what that is. It's just this uh, quickly constructed uh, covering over people, and they would meet, and he preached, he preached the gospel for a couple of weeks, but he got pneumonia. So when he came home, he was very sick, and he preached that last Sunday. Uh, and as soon as it was, it was over, he had a very high temperature. He went to the parsonage. You know what the parsonage is. He went to the parsonage, went to bed, and she tells the whole story. I've got it at home. She handwrote this whole story of his life, and all these pictures were just wonderful. And so she's talking about what he's saying on his deathbed. And this is what he kept quoting, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who love or longed for his appearing. This is what Paul said on his dying, in his dying day. And... Um, this is what this kind of life, living under the control of the love of Christ, will produce, that kind of a life. When you look back over it, uh, you will realize that it was not a waste for you to live under the control of, of Christ's love for you, but it was the very thing that you should have been motivated by. To have our tar- hearts controlled by the love of Christ is the most excellent condition that we could ever imagine. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are. If this is, this, this is our condition, that we are controlled by the love of Christ, regardless of circumstances, we could say the same thing as Paul did at the end of our life. Now, Paul has explained the difference between life under the old covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, and life under the new covenant, which we are under now. The new covenant is what we celebrate every time we come to the Lord's table. The new covenant is Christ does it all, and we receive what he has done for us by faith. Not by earning something, but by faith. We live for him because he empowers us to live for him. He exerts his power in our life. And so Paul has made uh, a big thing of this. We looked at this back in chapter 3, um, in verses uh, 6 through 18. He talks about the difference between life under the old covenant, being a minister of the old covenant and being a minister of the new covenant. He, he contrasts Moses to himself to show the difference in the approach of ministry because ministry under the new covenant is so dominated by the heart being controlled by the love of Christ, living in response to the most powerful motivating force in all the human experience, the love of Christ. That is Christ's love for us. And you know why he loved us? Because he loved the Father. And the Father gave us to him. That's what the Bible says. It says the Father manifests his love towards the Son by giving him a people for whom he would go and die. And then at the end of the process, he's going to present us to the Father as his bride. And as Christian fathers, we serve under the new covenant. You are new covenant fathers if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. I want to read to you again from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is Paul's comparison between ministry under the old covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant where the law was given at Mount Sinai, 
And when Paul talks about the letter and the Spirit, what he's contrasting isn't the Bible and the Holy Spirit. He's contrasting the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments written on stone by the finger of God and the the new covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way you can become a Christian, the only way you could have become a Jew is being born into a Jewish family, but the only way you could become a Christian is if God were to give you as a gift that you don't deserve, eternal life and his very nature. That's the only way you could become a Christian. The new birth, it's called. Being born of the Spirit. And so the ministry under the old covenant, in contrast to the new, is very different. This is what Paul wrote in chapter 3, verses 6 or 18. We also, we, we were also made, were made adequate by God as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, that is, not of, uh, under, not of the written letters on the Ten Commandments, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills. Because the reason it kills is because the letter on, written on stones was the Ten Commandments who said, and if you notice, they're all, thou shalt not. They are all commandments. They're good commandments. You should know them. They're very good. It's just that they, what we needed was a different heart. This is what God told Israel. Your problem isn't, you say you love the law, the fact, but the fact is you don't have a heart to obey it. And uh, we still feel the effects of that. We know what God's will is. And yet we could even say, oh yes, I believe that this commandment is for us as the people of God, and yet I don't keep it. So he says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit produces something in the heart that causes us to want to obey him. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, and it did, the giving of the law came with great glory. There were angels involved, and the earth shook, the mountain was ablaze, and so forth. He says, if it came with glory, imagine the kind of glory that the new covenant comes with. Will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. In other words, the moon looks really bright, but if you go out in the sun, you can't even see the moon because of the brightness of the sun. In the same way with the brightness of the new covenant, so glorious because it's the work of Christ, what Christ did in your place. And it's so glorious, he says, for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And we're not like Moses, who used to veil, put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the end of what was fading away. He would go in and speak to God, he'd come out and his face would be shining. And he would put a veil over it after he spoke to the people so they couldn't see it fading away. So he veiled his face. Now, Paul uses this as a picture of the fact that a new covenant minister tells the truth. He's transparent. He doesn't veil his face. That's the truth. That's the truth of a new covenant father. A new covenant father learns how to be transparent with his children in his love for them. And the way that because his heart is controlled by the love of Christ, he leads his family as someone whose heart is controlled by the love of Christ. And he says, now the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. What brought 
Paul and his companions into this glorious, glorious condition. What is it that, what is, how did Paul get there? How did he come to be a man who's controlled by the love of Christ? Well, he tells us in this passage, and I want to show you this. First of all, he says, you have to come to the right conclusion. We came to the right conclusion. The word conclusion here is a Greek word, krino, which means what a judge does when he sits on the bench. What a judge does is he looks at the evidence and then he comes to a conclusion and he declares the conclusion. And Paul says, we have concluded that, that this, that Christ died for all, that one died for all, therefore all died. So the first thing is you have to come to this conclusion that one died for all. You, so you have to examine the evidence like a judge would examine the evidence. Uh, it's amazing to me when we sing uh, in church, that we are learning expressions to use in our communion and our conversation with the Father. You know, we can talk to the Father with these glorious words. When we sing, I, there's a line in one of the songs that we sing, take heart, he will love you forever. Think of the implications of that. Take heart, he will love you forever. I think it's a wonderful thing to know that your spouse will love you throughout all of life. And sometimes if you get afraid that's not going to happen, it's really unnerving. But there's something far greater than that. The, the Christ who died for you, who manifests his love for you by dying on the cross, will love you forever. In fact, we're even told that this is the motivation behind God's chastening his children is because of his love for them. Solomon said in the Proverbs that if a parent won't discipline their child, it's because they don't love them. They're hating their child if they don't discipline them. So we have a father who loves us, and he disciplines us. So even those times when we're undergoing discipline is a manifestation of the love of God. And when your heart is controlled by the love of Christ, that's how you interpret the discipline. And you have to consider the context of Christ's death. Hebrews 9.26. Hebrews 9.26. Once... He has, he has been manifested once at the high point of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I think the New American Standard translated once at the consummation of the, of the ages, the suntelia. It means that crucial moment in all of history that puts everything together. This one event is what makes sense of all of history. Everything that happened before it leads to it. Everything that happens after it flows from it. So we, Paul concluded that Christ's death had great significance. It was the most important event in all of history. Nothing compares to it. That he was manifested once at the consummation of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then we are to understand the purpose. Let me read to you 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. But that, by the way, that little expression, beloved of the Lord, is real powerful. It means he's calling them. He says, uh, he's, he's addressing them, and he says, This is who you are. You are those who have been loved by God, and you continue to be loved by God. He says, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and faith in the truth, it was for this he called you. Why in the world did God save you? Why did he call you? He says, this is the reason. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of the Lord. The word gain here means fully possess and experience. Uh, Here's 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 an, uh, an illustration of it. 
I don't know if you you remember when you bought your first house. It was and maybe maybe you've bought a home that was being built. You know, maybe you bought a home that you made the purchase and then they had to get it built and then you're going to move into it. Well, this word means when you move in and you're living in the house. And he says what God the reason God saved you is so that you could fully possess the glory of Christ. Well, what's the glory of Christ? Well, let me tell you what the glory of Christ is. The glory of Christ is that he is loved by the Father. And you know what he says in his priestly prayer? Jesus prays to the Father for you. I mean, for you specifically. He prays for you and he says, Father, let them know by experience the love which you have loved me with from all eternity. That's stunning. That Christ wants the Father to love you just the way he loved him in all of eternity past. He's going to love you. And so he says, this is why he saved you, so that you could fully possess the glory of Jesus Christ. So you could be loved by by the Father the way Jesus has been loved by by the Father from all eternity. And then we revel in this glory. I love this. Paul writes in Ephesians 3 that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. He says, I'm praying for you that, that God would strengthen your inner man empower you on the inside so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, and he goes on, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. The word dwell here means to settle down and feel at home. It means to move in and be at home. I have this, I downloaded this this morning. A, this was actually a, I couldn't find my copy of an old brochure that was put out. Robert Munger, Bob Munger, who used to pastor, he's in heaven now, but back in 1951, there was a 1951. Some of you aren't aware of that, but there was a 1951. And um, I still remember the 51 Ford that my dad drove. And uh, he wrote this, this little brochure in 1951, My Heart, Christ's Home. And it's really, a, it's, it's a, a joyful read. It's only like three pages, but he talks about how when Christ came to live within you, he came to settle down and be at home in your heart. That's why he came. And that we have to have this attitude of, we want him to have full access to all of our heart. And so he has this little way of doing this where he talks about all the rooms in your heart and he and he goes through this whole thing about the library the living room and on and on and on how that jesus comes to live to settle down and be at home in your heart and so when we come to realize this that god it it isn't just he wanted to give you something and then walk away you know like some guy on the street comes up and says here here's a free gift and it's an advertisement for something, and you take it, you know, and you put it in your pocket and walk away. Nice little gift. That's not how God is. What God wanted to do for you was to give you this kind of gift. I want, you to, I want to give you my son, and he's going to come and take up residence in your heart through the Holy Spirit. And he's going to settle down and be at home. And he says, and what Paul is praying is that you would get so used to him dwelling there. You'd be so aware of the dwelling of Christ that he'd begin to work in you and to empower you to understand the height and breadth and length and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses understanding. 
In other words, it's impossible to understand this apart from the Spirit's empowerment. You could never understand the depth of God's love. In fact, that's why I think it's so neat that we sing songs that keep extolling the love of Christ, the love of God. John, I mean, uh, Romans 5.8, you all memorize that, I think. I could get Nancy to, to quote it, but I won't. But Romans 5.8, the Father's demonstrated his love for us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that wonderful? That's how God manifested, demonstrated his love for you. You know, sometimes we have this kind of rotten attitude, like, well, uh, you know, what has God done for me lately? My life's a big mess. Oh, let me tell you what he did for you lately. 2,000 years ago, he sent his son into the world to take your place and to die upon a cross and to absorb all of the wrath of God that was due you so that you wouldn't receive it. And that you would be brought into this family and be given eternal life. And so when we sing those words, take heart, he will love you forever, it ought to move our hearts. I think it was in 96 that uh, I was really burdened. I I just had experienced what seemed to me like to be the biggest failure of my life. And I was just overwhelmed with this. And so I decided one Sunday, I wasn't preaching that Sunday and uh, at the church I was at. And so I went over to hear a friend of mine preach, Steve Fernandez, actually, in Vallejo. And I get there, I'm thinking, well, maybe I could have a talk with him afterwards and get encouraged. And he's preaching on the death of Christ. He's preaching on the cross. And so as he's preaching, he's, and I better be careful if I start talking about this, it'll really get to me. But he's preaching about the cross, and he begins to describe Jesus hanging on the cross and how it went completely dark. Remember that? It became dark so that people couldn't even move around. And he starts talking about the love of God for us. And the love of God, the Father for his son. That his son became sin for us as he hung there. And the father pulled the shade as he poured out his wrath on his own son for us. As he made him an offering for sin. As he made him a sin offering on our behalf. He pulls the shade so nobody could see but him. I was so overwhelmed with that. I was just, it's like, that was the last thing I thought that I would hear is how much God loved me. Because I was trying to figure out how I could ever make right what a failure and a total mess I was. And then I hear this message about the love of God for us. (laughs) What a glorious message that is. It is, it's so glorious, and he wants us to revel in this. He wants us to revel in the glory of Christ. Christ is glorious because the Father displayed his love for us through him. He couldn't have done it any other way. And that's what he did, and he says he wants you to actually understand it and be your heart be controlled by it. And then secondly, in the first part of verse 15, we have to experience true freedom. He said he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. He took our place, and we come to life in Christ Jesus. He sets us free, and this is how he describes it, that we would no longer live for ourselves. You think, well, wait a minute. Isn't that what life in the free world is all about? We get to live for ourselves, right? I mean, you only go around once in life, get all the gusto you can. Accumulate everything you can. Get everything that pleases you. Uh, that's what you should do in life. You pursue 
self-aggrandizement, self-pleasure. But that's not what it is. The Bible is very clear. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. We've been set free. This is freedom from living for yourself. And it is a glorious freedom. It's, it's a supernatural freedom. It's absolutely supernatural. Some people think, how could that be freedom? Well, for example, this freedom is manifested in a household. For example, uh, you remember Philippians 2? In Philippians 2? Well, I, I guess I'll have to have you turn there. Turn to Philippians 2. It's just about two books to the right. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Chapter 2. I get this. Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement, or and the idea, since there is, encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing that's simply for you, for your pleasure, for your good, but with humility of mind. That means having the mind servant, mindset of a servant. I am your servant. That's what it means, that I have this mindset. I'm to serve you. He said, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude, this franima, this uh, mindset, a way of looking at life in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or used for his own benefit, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and so forth. You know the rest of the passage. I want you to stop and think about this. Jesus' father died. His human father, Joseph, who was a stepfather, obviously, but he died. And, uh, and Jesus was a young man. He became the head of the household. Now, I want you to think about this. What would it be like to grow up in a home where the father was totally selfless and had a servant's heart that he didn't do anything just for himself but he actually cared about your welfare more than his own well there's a guy in the new testament who wrote a new testament book who grew up in that house his name is james it's the brother of jesus i i gotta show you this look at james chapter four here's here's james describing a james describing a household that wasn't like his and he's talking about the household of these churches he's writing to and he says, this is exact opposite of what he grew up with. He grew up with Jesus as the head of the house. And Jesus was exactly what Philippians 2 says he was. He had that kind of mindset. And so he says to this, these churches, he says, what is, this is James, the brother of Jesus. And he says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Why are you having so many quarrels and conflicts? You know, because we can't agree on eschatology. No, that's not it. <laughs> he said, is it, not, is it not that the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? Now, pleasures, hedone, hedonism. It means I live for pleasure. I live, if you get in my way and I want to I experience this pleasure that I can experience, 
And you, if you block my path to that, then you're going you're gonna to be sorry. All of us have known families where the father was like that. I, I didn't grow up in a home like that, but I, knew, I had friends that had fathers like that. That you never crossed them. You never did anything that would keep them from having what they wanted to have and what they wanted to experience at a given moment. He says, you lust and you do not have. In other words, you really want something bad, but you can't get it. So you, what do you do? You commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you can squander it on your own pleasures. That's James, the brother of Jesus, who grew up in a household where the head of the house, as he was a young boy, was Jesus. And Jesus had a Philippians 2 mindset. So we're freed from the ultimate form of bondage, which is living for yourself. If you've never been set free from that, this probably sounds like nonsense to you. But I got to tell you, this is true freedom. When you begin to experience what life is when you're not living for yourself, but living for him who died and rose again on your behalf. See, that is fed from the flesh. When the Bible talks about being in the flesh before we were saved, it means we were living in this state where our whole orientation was, what's best for me? What's best for me? So everybody becomes either a stepping stone or an obstacle. Everybody in your life, they're either a stepping stone or an obstacle. They're either going to help you get what you want or they're going to stand in your way. So what do you do? You get rid of the obstacles and you use the stepping stones to get what you want. That's the flesh. And that's bondage. And then the third thing he says is, after he's saying that we have to experience true freedom through faith in Christ, and then second, third, he says, you must immerse yourself and your family in the gospel, not religion. He says, we live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We we live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. This is freedom. To live for Christ. You know, we talk about living for Christ. Uh, we're followers of Jesus, right? Our, our primary goal is to help people to learn how to live for Christ, to walk with Christ, to follow Christ. How do you do it? And so we want we uh, to lead them in such a way that they learn how, by following our example, how to pray, how to walk in faith, how to follow Jesus. And that's a tough assignment, and it's impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you will never have this mark of a true Christian father apart from Christ providing it for you. I was reading this thing the other day, and they said that Christian preaching, biblical preaching, when you present what God wants you to do and wants you to be, it always produces a vacuum in people's hearts if you do not make it clear that this is what you ought to be, but only Jesus Only Jesus can empower you to be that. Only Jesus can provide for you what you need in order to be a true Christian father, to stop living for yourself and start living for him who died and rose again on your behalf. Living for him who died and rose again on our behalf. That's what we're to immerse our families into. It's embarrassing preaching this because I haven't done that great of a job and my son is sitting right back there in the back. And he knows me real well. But this is what I desire. It's what you desire, all of you men who are fathers and Christians. 
is the key to gospel freedom. Incredible life motivation. This is what Paul says in, in chapter 1 of, of 2 Corinthians. Remember this, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. It was really bad what we suffered in this time of persecution. He says, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. See, God is able in his working in your life to bring you to the place where you stop living for yourself and you live for him who died and rose again on your behalf. He's able to do that. There are all kinds of amazing uh, psychological effects to this that when you, I heard this guy talking about learning how to talk to God by the songs that this church sang that he went to. As he heard these refrains over and over again, he began, it, began to, it began to be integrated into his prayer language. And he said, I didn't know how to pray. I'd never prayed in my life till I started going to this church and I heard the gospel. And he said, and then they, they taught me all these songs and I was able to communicate with God with these glorious phrases. Do you ever thank God because he will love you forever? You can sing to God. It's really neat. You can sing to God because... He doesn't care how off-key you are. The only thing he's looking at is the condition of your heart. Um, we had a graduation this past week at Cornerstone, and there's two guys graduating. One of them is a music guy at, at uh, Community Bible Church in Vallejo. The other guy, I have no idea if he can sing or not, but he always has a song in his heart because you can tell by the look on his face. <laughs> because he, he always has this look on his face, and it's like you want to ask him, what are you so happy about Jesus. I heard this old song the other day. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The more that I love him, more love he bestows. Each day is like heaven. My heart overflows. I sing that to the Lord. I'm not going to sing it to you because you're critical of my, um, my voice, but he's not. And so I can sing it to him. The longer I serve you, the sweeter it grows. The more that I love you, more love you bestow. Each day is like heaven, and my heart overflows. You see, that's, that's part and parcel with this characteristic of not living for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. And he's done so much to bring this home to your heart. He's given you a new heart. That's what the Bible says. He gave you a new heart. He gave you the Holy Spirit to live within you, to empower you to worship him. The Bible says that Christians pray together. That's a characteristic of Christians. We are those who pray together. In fact, the first phrase that's used of the people of God in the Bible is, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That means they begin to pray. They begin to pray. And um, if I'm not praying, the reason is I'm not in my right mind. It, it's crazy. If you're in your right mind, you're going to pray if you're a believer because you know who your source is. God's called and equipped every believer to be a new covenant minister, a servant of Christ. If you're a Christian father, he's called and equipped you to be a new covenant father. It's an impossible assignment apart from Christ. But in and through Christ, we can come to be controlled by the love of Christ instead of what we are so frustrated about. And we can fulfill our calling 
of no longer living for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. That's what I long that this sermon would do. It would produce in your heart a desire and an understanding of how you can come to be that kind of a person. And if you're a father, you'll be a new covenant father. If you're a mother, you'll be a new covenant mother. If you're, if you're single, you'll be a new covenant single because you'll start living no longer for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. Let me pray for you. Our Father, we stop now and, and just want to come before you and ask you in the name of Jesus, because you said if we come to you in the name of Jesus that so we have access, and we have freedom of speech, and we can actually tell you what we need. And so, Father, we tell you as, as a part of this church what our church needs, what all of us need, is we need to be people who no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. We thank you for a Savior like this. We thank you, Father, for this promise that we are going to experience the glory of Christ. We're going to possess it because we're going to experience, as we do even today, that you love us with the same kind of love that you have loved your Son from all eternity. We are objects of your love, and we thank you for it. Help us to encourage each other. Father, help us not to believe the lies that are hurled at us continually, but help us to believe the truth that you've given to us in your word, that we are the objects of your love. You have loved us in ways that we can't even measure, and we are so grateful for it. We thank you for it, Father. We thank you that we're forgiven because he was forsaken. And we are the objects of your glorious grace and love. Help us to live like it today, we pray. Thank you for these fathers. I pray for each one of them that you would encourage them, Father. That you would encourage them through this truth. That you would usher them into this life lived under the control of the love of Christ for them. And that it would, it would color everything they do and everything they say, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.